Welcome to Dragon Talk, everyone. Yay, Dragon Talk! Dragon Woo! Talk, you're my favorite kind of talk. <laughs> I also like coffee talk. <laughs> We're excited for you to be here. And I think potty I'm... talk. Hey, simmer down over there. Uh, we got a potty award winner over there. We sure do. I am very excited to welcome you to the official Dungeons and Dragons podcast. I'm Greg Tito. Woo! Yeah, y'all. I'm Shelly Mazzanoble. Woo! Yeah, and we I like applaud that, for myself. Yeah, we are clipping microphones and making everyone happy. I know. Sorry about that, everyone. Sorry, but Sorry. we love to show the enthusiasm because today is a very special day. It is the week in which we have uh, overthrown a lawful evil overthrown tyrant. Very excited about in our D and D game. In our D and D game called the United States of America. Oh my god. It's so exciting. <laughs> it's, yep, and um, it is. But it's also exciting because we're about a week out from a very special book release. That's right. Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. everything. There's so um, much things in it. I don't know if you saw this. and we. I don't know if we, we talked about it when it happened. But on Amazon... That Tasha's went screaming up the bestseller uh, chart yeah, on Amazon. Of all books. Out of all books. Like sandwiched between the Barefoot Contessa's um, new cookbook, which is on my holiday list Ooh, um, for anyone who might be listening. Good to know. And also um, Matthew McConaughey's memoir. Like and right in between there. Barack Obama's uh, book as well was also oh. in that in that area. Just to make sure okay. we're talking about politics, which makes Shelly uncomfortable. <laughs> I mean, I mean it's very exciting. Uh, yes, I am always impressed by how Dungeons and Dragons books uh, end up on those lists. Yes, it yeah. is mind blowing to and think that it came from 1974, where it was being sold out of. You know, in paperbacks out of the back of uh, Gary Gygax's car uh, to uh, being distributed worldwide and having so many people excited about a book that's not even out yet. It's crazy. Yes, that it's right there. Because I'm pretty sure Matthew McConaughey goes to Amazon every day and he's probably like, where's my, my ranking? Where is it? And then he's like, Tasha's all right, all right, all right. I want to order that too. That I'm going to drink good. an entire <laughs> cauldron of beer. Yeah. At the Moon Tower. Kids. He might be playing D&D. You never know. He probably is. Um, and also, that is not the only bestseller, but also Heroes Feast Cookbook was also uh, on the New York Times bestseller list. Very excited for Michael Whitwer, John Peterson, and Kyle Newman's amazing cookbook. Have you cooked anything from, speaking of Barefoot Contessa, have you cooked anything from the Heroes <laughs> Feast Cookbook yet? I have not, but I have seen lots of recipes that are very tempting. Um, the photography in that book is so beautiful, it's almost intimidating to me because I don't want to see like what it was supposed to look like. Right. It's like, it's like <laughs> the uh, uh, nailed it of oh, uh, cooking. Yeah. I, you know, I'm I very that. sure I can make delicious food out of those recipes, but I will not be able to make it look as good no. or fanciful as those do. They, I, what I love about that photography is that there's all these props. It really sets it into a fantasy universe. It's not just yes. uh, you know, on, a, on a white tile countertop or something like that. Right. 
Right. Super cool. It's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So lots of good things happening in the world of D&D right now. It's true. It's true. So November, November 17th is when Tasha's Cauldron of Everything is released in uh, North America. It'll be on December 1st in the European Union uh, as well <laughs> as in uh, Australia. Um just a little bit of delay in getting the printers going. But other than that, everything is going to be exciting to see new subclasses, new magic items, new group patrons, DMs tools for you to use, including puzzles. Puzzles, exactly. Uh, don't tell anyone in your house, but I'm currently using a puzzle from Tasha's Cauldron of Everything in my campaign that Bart is Are in. you? I am, yeah. I don't want him to look at it. <laughs> Okay. I uh, I've, I'll, ch- I'll change it a little bit. So, I mean, that's, that's what's great about how it is written up. Uh, Elisa Teague did much of the creation of this section of the book. Um, and she's got lots of great tips in there for how you can alter the puzzle so it doesn't seem so um, samey, as well as give hints, which I think a lot of players would appreciate when they're dealing with yeah. puzzles, is how a dungeon master gives information uh, to allow them to come up with those puzzles, uh, the, the solution to those puzzles in ways that feel satisfying because that's that's what you want. That's very cool. Yeah. Lots of good stuff. And if you happen to be, I don't know, placing an order for Tasha's through your local game store or wherever you're, you're, you're getting your D&D product these days, you might want to just add a couple more things to your shopping cart. Like... The Great Del Moody Dungeons and Dragons, a very fun card game celebrating the 25th anniversary of the Great Del Moody um, with beautiful, beautiful Dungeons and Dragons um, new artwork by illustrator Harry Conway. And if you want to get a taste of uh, his beautiful artwork, you should download Dragon Plus, the latest issue, because uh, his artwork is gracing the cover there. That's so cool. I know. I love all that. I love that. I love. I love the art. It's a beautiful um, illustration interpretation of of Strahd. That is what your cover looks like um, this month. Nice. Um, yeah. And uh, speaking of Strahd, you can still get Curse of Strahd revamped, um, even though it is past Halloween. It is still time for spookiness out it's there, uh, as well as you know a much longer campaign. With dealing with the uh, you know the leader of Barovia there, um, and uh, I do want to say we have a great interview coming. Uh, Ned Donovan and Brian David Judkins from the Encounter Party Party Audio Podcast join us. Dungeon Master and producers of that segment. Uh, super interesting to talk to them as well as hear about uh, what it was like for them growing up. Uh, not growing up, but at least going to college in Ithaca. <laughs> Another wonderful Ithaca connection. I know, even more Go so. Bombers. Probably one of our like biggest Ithaca connections. Yeah, that's that's that Pretty is exciting. undoubtedly. Daddy. I, I'm in the middle of recording. Hey, Daddy. <laughs> it's important. What's up? <laughs> I saw a package under Mommy's bed, and I think uh, it's for me. Is whoa, she, whoa! No yeah. snooping. No, no snooping. snooping. Get out of here. Uh, but I will tell you, I have been snooping in Tasha's Culture of Everything. Oh. As for what's coming up, um, including talking to Jeremy Crawford uh, about the character of Tasha in a very special Lore You Should Know segment uh, where we talk 
as me and Jeremy are wont to do a lot uh, <laughs> about the history of that character and what you can expect from her in Tasha's College of Everything. It's super cool. So let's give a little listen to that, shall we? Yes, please. Welcome to a very special segment of Lore You Should Know. Uh, this time we've got Jeremy Crawford here talking to us. Hi, Jeremy. Hi there. Good uh, to see you. He, good to see you too. Uh, I'm excited to talk about uh, our topic today, but it is interesting because we usually talk to you about sage advice and rules mechanics and things like that. But for this segment where we delve into uh, little bits of D&D lore for, for fun or, or just for, for uh, using in your game, we're going to talk about uh, Tasha the character that is the uh, eponymous character from Tasha's Cauldron of Everything coming in on uh, November 17th uh, to North America and December 1st to everywhere else. Uh, very excited about this book. There are so many chock full things. There literally is everything in this cauldron, right, Jeremy? Yes. Yeah, there is There is a little bit of like every major part of D&D is represented in some way inside this bubbling cauldron. That's amazing. Uh, I'm excited because uh, we get to learn a lot about this character in addition to all of the fun mechanical bits like subclasses and magic items and spells. Um, this character of Tasha is one that has been around for a very long time, right? When was, when was uh, she first introduced in the D&D lore? Tasha first appeared going all the way back to first edition D&D. And many people know the name in D&D because of the spell that bears her name, Tasha's Hideous Laughter, a, a spell that has made it through you know, the game's different revisions over the decades and is in the current player's handbook. Uh, but what, what we realized when we were uh, preparing work on this book, Tasha's Cauldron, uh, way back at the beginning of 2019, even even some of our early thinking in uh, late uh, 2018, we we thought, you know, well, we want to feature somebody. And Tasha was on our list as this amazing character who's been in D&D for decades, but is always sort of a, a key figure in various stories or who is one of, again, one of the few people in the entire D&D universe who has a spell with their name on it, yet despite this, people, especially these days, often have no idea who is this person who, you know, like Mordenkainen and Bigby and Tensor, has a spell with their name on it. Yeah. So, so Tasha, like those other spellcasters I mentioned, uh, comes from the world of Greyhawk, which... One of the oldest settings for D&D. You know, it was the setting of Gary Gygax. And Tasha was a character in that world associated one of, with one of the great adventuring groups. Many people have heard of the Circle of Eight that mm. Kane was a part of. Well, Tasha was a part of a different group called the Company of Seven. And, and appropriately enough, the Company of Seven... Uh, came around in the Greyhawk timeline before the Circle of Eight, you know. So now we need to be, wait for the Cabal of Nine, <laughs> and then the Click of Ten, and you know we could just we can play this game all day all day long. Well, before the you know the Circle of Seven, there was the uh, uh, 
you know, septum of six is <laughs> that's right. goes back and back and farther. And 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 Tasha was a powerful wizard in the company of seven. Uh, she was the apprentice of the wizard Zagig. But even before that, and this is a part of her lore that has grown over the decades, she had an even more notable fact. And that is, she was raised by Baba Yaga herself. Right. And this isn't just some, you know, random woman whose name happens to be, you know, she's not Ms. Y- Ms. Yaga. <laughs> to her <laughs> fans. <laughs> uh, Baba. No, no, no. This is the Baba Yaga. Uh, the know, same one that's in our world's lore. Uh, the same entity that was, you know, figures in Russian folklore uh, with, with having a uh, uh, a hut that walks on chicken legs and, uh, you know, so many of the, ba- the, you know, not necessarily bad or evil things, but uh, an antagonist in so many Russian fairy tales. And and also even sometimes a an ally with a twist because mm-hmm. like many hags, uh, Baba Yaga can be reasoned with, can be bargained with, can be tricked sometimes likes being tricked because, you know, fey beings often enjoy the sort of like give and take of tricks. It's sort of a game they're all playing. Uh, but that Baba Yaga, who, who has the infamous uh, chicken-footed hut that wanders around, not only in Earth's folklore, but in the D&D multiverse, a hut that appears in a full-page painting in our Dungeon Master's Guide, mm-hmm. she raised Tasha. Does that mean that Tasha is also a hag or? She is not. So Baba Yaga adopted Tasha. Mm. Tasha was a human girl uh, who was adopted by Baba Yaga. And this, this is another common fairy tale trope of a, a mortal child being raised by the fae. And so in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, at several points where Tasha comments on the, on the content of the book, she will refer to her childhood with Baba Yaga, which included wandering around the multiverse. You know, there was, certainly was some time spent in, in the realm of the Fae, the Feywild, uh, because Baba Yaga likes to have her hut wander into the Feywild occasionally in, in a way to visit home. Uh, hmm. But but Tasha also saw many other parts of the multiverse growing up. And we have a painting in the book that many people have seen in previews of Tasha in her youth studying magic outside her, her adoptive mother's uh, chicken-footed hut. Uh, and I love that image. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's it, so evocative and it brings that, it brings uh, just so many details of her biography to life in a way that you, you know, so many times you have like a, a, a powerful wizard character and they were always like that, you know? What was Gandalf's childhood like? Nobody knows. But, you know, here we have a, a, a really cool through line and I'm going to just ask this one question because it's something that's fascinating me. Is there a possibility that Tasha is an earthling? Like was she, where was she abducted and adopted from by Baba Yaga? So that, that is a mystery I am not going to reveal. Mm. Uh, well, then my headcanon is that she's from uh, Detroit. Oh, I love it. Uh, so, because her, she also has been called Natasha. And, oh. and also keep in mind that back in first edition D&D, 
it didn't it didn't come up often, but it did occasionally pop up that D&D characters did sometimes come from Earth or visit Earth. Yes. Uh, and and that included some of the original adventure material about Baba Yaga. They, some of the early D&D stories about Baba Yaga assumed that our world, this Earth, was accessible from the D&D multiverse, especially to beings like Baba Yaga. I so love there that. is a, there is a a not there is a non-zero chance, I'll put it that way. That <laughs> I'm for that it. Ta- that Tasha actually was born somewhere on Earth. I love that so much. You know, it's, I mean, we've talked about it on previous Lori Should Know segments about uh, Ed Greenwood had a column where he would have Morden Kanan uh, and uh, was it someone else from uh, the D and D multiverse in his El- Elminster? So, yes, of course, Elminster from the Forgotten and, and also Dalimar from Kryn. Wow. Yeah. So. Uh, that exists, and not you know, all the way up to uh, the more modern era when uh, Chris Perkins uh, brought the Adventure uh, Acquisitions Incorporated crew to the Wizards' offices. Uh, and yep. so there is, there's lots of bridges between our world and the fantasy world of um, Dungeons and Dragons, and I, you know, not not even to mention the uh, the uh, you know amusement park connection uh, of so, the cartoon. So I love, I love that you doing that hand gesture. I immediately knew you meant the roller coaster in the D and D cartoon. <laughs> it's true. You knew it. You knew exactly what I meant just by yes. that up and down because that is yep. so etched in our our memories. Um, and I yeah. love that you're continuing this con- uh, with with Tasha's Cauldron of Everything and uh, you know making these ideas happen. I mean, it's it's super fun. But she's had a long st- history since then, right? Yes. Yes. Oh, and I will say that people will notice in her in her quotes, she sounds a little more modern in some of her sensibilities that which could could point to possibly her having visited earth or being from earth but again i'm not going to confirm or deny that she wait a second from earth jeremy are you saying that you're tasha is that is that what you're trying to tell us? Well, well, I will, <laughs> I, I will confess that I, I did write some of Tasha's quotes in the book. I love it. That's awesome. <laughs> I, I can't wait to hear your voice come through uh, when uh, when people get to check that out. Um, but so a- after she was adopted and uh, had this amazing magical education from Baba Yaga, uh, where did she go next? So she then uh, apprenticed to Zagig. So already. She spends she spends this childhood with this figure often called the mother of all hags, then goes on to study under one of the more powerful wizards in the world of Greyhawk. Tasha then rubs shoulders on their various adventurous exploits with some of the best-known games in older D&D lore, people like Heward, after, you know, after whom the, the Heward's Handy Haversack is named. Oh. Um, and then Tasha's life starts to extend a bit in a supernatural way because the Company of Seven is actually separated from the Circle of Eight by many, many years. Yet you, can, you see Tasha popping up again and again in Greyhawk lore. And this is because, we look back at her origin, she learned a thing or two from her immortal mother. Mm. 
and also is a very powerful wizard in her own right, because Tasha is at the Mordenkainen uh, Elminster level, and in fact, arguably surpasses them uh, because of some of the other things I'm now going to talk about that she accomplished. One of her great accomplishments as a wizard in her later life, in, in addition to becoming a queen, uh, she, she eventually rules an area within Greyhawk uh, and is proclaimed the Witch Queen. Mm-hmm. Uh, she also created the well-known artifact, the Demonomicon of Igwilf. This, this artifact is, is detailed in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. And people listening to us might wonder, well, why didn't she put her own name on it? That's just it. Igwilf is also one of her names. Later in her life, as she grew more and more powerful and began to channel some of that uh, magic she learned from her mother, Tasha began to transition from being a mortal, extremely powerful wizard to having some immortal qualities like Baba Yaga, and in the process, adopted the title Igwilf. So, if you, if those of you who who are interested in old D and D lore and look up both the name Tasha and the name Igwilf, you will realize Tasha has been involved in pl- plot after plot after plot throughout D and D's history under one of her several names. Now, this demonomicon, there's a lot of misinformation about it uh, within even the D&D multiverse, because there are those who were Tasha's foes who view this, this item as a sign of Tasha's eventual villainy. Mm. Early in her life, she was very involved with you know, this, this heroic adventuring group. Although I say heroic actually in air quotes, because <laughs> many, many of the early D&D uh, adventuring groups had some moral grayness to them. And sometimes not just some, sometimes bucket loads of moral grayness where their self-interest often far outweighed uh, any desire to work for a greater good. Right, and the pursuit of knowledge could sometimes outweigh even that. Yes, and that was true of both the Company of Seven and the Circle of Eight. I mean, Morgan Canaan, for instance, who eventually sort of becomes a frenemy of Tasha's, uh, is notorious for being morally gray. I mean, Morton Kanan has ended up helping keeping various parts of the D&D multiverse from being destroyed over the years, but it's often for because of some self-interest that he has uh, in the mm-hmm. affair. But when Tasha made the Demonomicon of Igwelf, this, it sounds so sinister, uh, and it's associated with demons. But here's the thing. This book is one of the most powerful weapons against the demon lords of the abyss who hate Tasha for this book existing because it is with this book people can exert great power over demons. And Tasha is so powerful and so cunning, she even managed to embed a bit of the abyss inside the book itself. And, And at various times has even trapped a demon lord inside the book. And so her her accomplishment here uh, is second almost to no wizard 
uh, in the D&D multiverse. This is why I say like Tasha, you know, she she could quite likely whoop Morden Kanan's butt in a in a sort of toe-to-toe wizards duel, uh, all things being equal. That's and awesome. That's one of the reasons we have a painting of the two of them playing wizards chess in the book. And Morden Kanan is indeed getting his butt kicked. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in true uh, Queen's Gambit style, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's awesome. Uh, I well, so the the Nemonomicon is interesting because uh, you're right because you, you'd think like oh something that is describing these demons would inherently be an evil thing, but it does in some ways name them, and you know before it maybe the D and D multiverse didn't have a clear idea that there were these different demon lord entities and 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 that they had these different domains, and so by categorizing them and putting them into uh, the uh, you know, t- telling the truth about who these demon lords are and what their influences could be. That is a very powerful weapon. In some ways, she's like a journalist to uh, the, the the demons. Yeah, absolutely. And because the the demon lords of the abyss are creatures of utter chaos. And the last thing they want is their names and their deets showing up <laughs> in, this, in this tome uh, by this powerful wizard and at various points in the multiverse's history, people have used the demonomicon of Igwilv against the demon lords of the abyss. Uh, and so they they hate her for it. Yeah. Now, she she has a, another connection with the abyss in that in, in her efforts to learn how to harness its power, she had a dalliance with the demon lord Gratzt. Mm. And... In this process, uh, we think learn some of the information she needed to perfect the demonomicon. Uh, and we have a painting in the book also of this part of her life, uh, where it is very clear in the painting that her interaction with Gratz in a way was an information gathering uh, <laughs> exchange. Wow, so uh, she was a, a double agent. Uh... Uh, like another Natasha we might know. Uh, so that's even another fun connection to Earth lore. Yeah, because there there is this painting of her conversing with Gratz through a magic mirror, and behind her in her lab on a chalkboard, there is this arcane diagram that bears the words harnessing abyssal power. Mm. Uh, and she, like many of these morally gray wizards, they were not afraid to plumb different depths of the multiverse looking for different sources of power and often would end up using that power in ways that was not friendly to the source of that power. So in this case, she ended up harnessing the Abyss's power and then used it that power against the Abyss. Uh, now, her power ends up becoming so mighty that eventually she becomes the enemy of a number of adventurers, specifically in the world of Greyhawk. Mm-hmm. The tales about this later phase in her life where she is fully Igwilv, they vary depending on the adventures you've played from the old days. Uh, I often like to think there are unreliable narrators uh, because you have to remember 
adventurers in first edition D&D in particular were not always good. Mm. They were often doing what they were doing uh, to, you know, rob people. Uh, for their own self-interest, right? Because for their own self-interest. Gold uh, was experience points, so yes. <laughs> that, that made and, a lot of sense. And so it is always important to keep that in mind when we contextualize the the activity of characters like uh, Tasha and Morton Keenan, and then also the activity of people who oppose them, keeping in mind that the kind of old-timey sword and sorcery narratives of first edition D&D, there was actually no assumption that any of these people were heroic. Mm. Uh, the, you know, being a D&D adventurer back then, all it meant is that you were going on adventures, on adventures, period. Yeah. We, we, we knew nothing about uh, D&D adventurers' sort of moral compass at that point. It's actually been in time, uh, D&D's uh, assumption has shifted so that we now assume adventurer means hero, but that wasn't the case back in the, the sort of hard scrabble days of, of Morton Kanan and Tasha and Heward and Zagig and Bigby, where they, especially in the world of Greyhawk, were in... In a, in a place that was constantly at risk of falling into the abyss because of, you know, the machinations of figures like Orcus or Lolf, uh, you know, that was at risk of being overrun by giants or some other force. Or Ayuz. And, yep, by Ayuz, who is also connected to Tasha. Oh, how is that connection? Ayuz is Tasha's son. <gasps> really? So, wow. Igwil's I, son? Is it that how it was yes. phrased back then? So Ayuz is the is one of the outcomes of Tasha's research project with Gratz. Oh, so he is Ayuz a Cambian then? Yes. I use is a demigod. Interesting. And, and so and what what amazing parents you have. <laughs> Right. Gratz on one hand and Tasha, daughter of Baba Yaga, on the other. And, yeah. and so and so I use in a way is a a melding together of uh not only the mortal and the immortal, but even sort of there's the abyssal on one hand with Gratz, but also a touch of the Fey on the side of Tasha. Uh and so there's almost you can almost think of it as as a we we sometimes imagine the unseely Fey. Is having you know these various sinister aims, and so you can you can imagine that if you take the sort of fey influence from Tasha and mix it with the abyssal influence, well, you we we ended up with with the bad egg Ayuz, who ends up causing a lot of trouble uh, in the world of Greyhawk. But I love that you know if you flip it on its head, I mean he had a as you say a very storied parents, very, mm -hmm. you know, you could say the prophecies that were uh, around his ascension, maybe he was the good guy. I mean, he did all those awful things, but yes, but, but you know, you, you know, you could you know, tilt the uh, uh, world about 180 and you could be like, well, maybe that was, you know, there was, there was a story there. And, and so it, it is these facts and many more. I mean, uh, Tasha was also connected to the story of the Crook of Rao, another artifact that appears in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything because of a rivalry between 
uh, Tasha and the wielder of the Crook of Rao, and Tasha actually cursed the artifact. And as we as we say in the book, that artifact still bears Tasha's curse. Again, a sign of her uh, immense power. Uh, we also uh, show very briefly in the book an image of uh, apprentice wizards pledging themselves to her in the witch queen portion of of her life uh, because we actually show her as an example of a group patron mm. uh, that you if your group if your group patron is a sovereign well that sovereign could be Tasha herself uh, and that's great she she has in in many ways more sort of awesome chapters in her life than almost any other NPC uh, in D&D's history. I mean, because who else you know, was raised by the likes of Baba Yaga, went on to be in one of the most famous adventuring groups in D&D history, created magic that now still bears her name, created some of the most powerful artifacts in the game's history, uh, is the mother of a god, uh, and whose name now echoes across the multiverse. So given these many details, uh, we we thought she is a perfect character to associate with a book like Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Uh, and, and if anyone is wondering, yes, uh, she does in fact have a cauldron. Uh, in fact, she has multiple cauldrons. Uh, and that's why we were glad to call this book uh, her, her cauldron. And I also can safely say this is not the last people are going to see of her. Ooh, uh, I like that. Uh, more to come. Uh, but I think there's just so much wealth of information uh, about her, as you say. And I'm glad that um, even though this book is, you know, not one of D&D's more story-heavy books, it does bring uh, so much storytelling in those marginalia notes uh, from... Uh, from Igwilv and Tasha herself, and uh, I'm I'm glad that you're able to kind of illuminate uh, some of that through this conversation, man. I I feel like 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 every time I talk to you, I want to just research more and find out uh, uh, what was going on in all those adventures that she's mentioned in, and uh, what it was like to be with Grass uh, as she was, as well as um, you know uh, going back to Baba Yaga's hut. That's so fun. Yeah, and. And to me, some of the, the most charming moments in Tasha's Cauldron are when Tasha talks about her time with her mom, uh, because it's clear, like many of us, you know, there were some tense times with her, but she also has some has actually some really uh, enduring affection for for the hag queen of the multiverse. <laughs> what? Because uh, you mentioned, you know, kind of morally gray a bunch. Um, where would you figure her alignment would would does it change throughout the course of her life? Does she have different influences that that might sway her towards neutral good or or, or true neutral? Uh, so I I have long thought of Tasha as being a great example of a a neutral character mm. where where Tasha and and really I would actually classify most of those original famous Greyhawk wizards as just neutral where. They just did what they wanted. They often were helpful. They sometimes were not. Uh, you know, they were not, they were rarely actively trying to do harm to the world. And Tasha has often been presented in a villainous light, 
But what's interesting is it's usually because of what someone else has done. Uh, like mm. people often think, oh, she must surely be a villain because she was the mother of Ayus. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait a second. The, the sins of the child are not the sins of the parent and vice versa. Yeah. Uh, so let's, you know, let's be careful there. Uh, and yes, she, she went to some of the more dangerous parts of the multiverse, the abyss being a prime example, but she also went to many of the splendid and beautiful places in the multiverse. And I think it's actually really important to understand her character, to go back to her origin, which is one of the reasons why we emphasize it in the book. Her childhood was saturated by a fey perspective. And the fey are notorious for having a different way of of pondering moral questions. Uh, they have, a, in a way, a different moral calculus than mortals tend to have. Uh, you know, they they often will prioritize truth-telling above almost anything else. You know, in, in many, in a lot of folklore, the Fae uh, will care far more about somebody being true to their word than about, like, notions of mercy or compassion. Mm. Uh, you know, and so... It, like having a moral compass, but sort of where the weight is placed being different as these sort of immortal beings who live in an entirely different realm from the material plane. And so Tasha grew up in that. She and grew up within an immortal and immortals also would have a very different view of existence than those of us who, you know, can only count on, you know, less than a century of life in most cases, uh, and, you know, that that frames everything differently. You know, if your mom can, had been alive for thousands of years and might be alive for thousands more, what a different upbringing you're going to have from, again, those of us, you know, with our with our mortal parents. Right. And the smaller, and, the smaller, um, well, to them, the perspective of smaller uh, trials and tribulations of, of humans who only live for, you know, 50 years in some cases mean, and, mean very little to them. Yes. And the other thing to keep in mind about Tasha, that because her early years were filled with journeying around the D&D multiverse, as soon as you get it outside of, I often think of the, the material plane worlds like Greyhawk and the Forgotten Realms, it's almost like the provinces. As soon as you get out of like the provinces and go to a place like the city of Sigil uh, in the Outlands where the Lady of Pain rules, you suddenly realize just how big and complex the D&D multiverse is. Because if someone is tempted to think, oh, Tasha is surely villainous because of her associations with Gratz. As I said, she didn't just have associations there. She had associations with creatures from all over the D&D multiverse. And anyone who goes to the city of Sigil, and this has always been true of Sigil, you could go to a cafe there and see an angel sipping tea with a devil. Mm -hmm. That as soon as you get off sort of like the what's going on on the, you know, the streets of Baldur's Gate uh, or, you know, or, you know, in the, in the salons of the city of Greyhawk and go to that broader, plainer perspective, everything is interacting with everything else. Uh, you know, the, the, the different creatures of those wondrous outer planes are not necessarily segmented off safely in their little sort of alignment uh, zones. <laughs> No, like, uh, again, one of the earliest things about, uh, you know, the Outer Plains is, no, you can go to some place and see the celestials uh, having a peaceful conversation with devils. Now, 
they might go somewhere else and then have a massive war. Right. Uh, uh, but it's complex. Yeah. And Tasha, and Tasha is complex, which is why I think she's such a fascinating character. Great. Well, I can't wait for uh, people to delve into this uh, fascinating character as well as all the fascinating things that are in this tome uh, and play and create all the fun characters maybe to meet Tasha uh, at some point in their in their fantastic careers or or to rival her. Uh, uh, that would be fascinating to see. And so I hope uh, Tasha's Culture and Everything, which again comes out on November 17th, provides inspiration not only in uh, the creation of really amazing D&D characters, but in uh, bringing to life this fascinating um, NPC, perhaps as a patron. I like that idea too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I hope many people will have Tasha as a patron. Uh, and, of course, I can't wait for when the uh, Black Widow movie comes out. Well, we'll find out that, uh, you know, she is actually Tasha. <laughs> yes. Okay, okay, I'll tell you. So in, in the Avengers movie, she didn't actually die. She actually fell into the Feywild. <laughs> It's and, my head cannon. It's so good. And was was raised by Baba Yaga. So yes, it's the same person. I love it. I love it. Uh, no, no, that's not, none of that is true. Obviously, <laughs> unless you want it to be in your game, I, it's just a little fun thing I like to do. And Jeremy, again, thank you so much for for coming on. I love how we said, "Oh, this is going to be a short, fun little segment," and here we are. Uh, you know, thirty minutes later, uh, I could, you know, we could talk about Tasha for a long, but longer, I think, too. Oh yeah, the. The, the longer that we worked on this book, the more actually I think our design team came to just appreciate what a splendid character Tasha is. And, and in many ways, we we're kicking ourselves like, why did we wait so long? I mean, <laughs> just the possibilities uh, with her are so vast. Have you seen the uh, cosplay that Ginny D made of Tasha? Yes. Spectacular. I love it. Uh, yeah. Just and and I've seen uh, some other fans as well now, inspired by the gorgeous cover art for the book, doing Tasha cosplay. Tis the which season, inc- which includes I almost forgot to to mention the the tattoo on her cheek. Ooh. Which, if anyone is wondering, what is that three pronged? Upward facing mark on her cheek. You, you might think it's is it a trident? No. It's a chicken leg upside down oh. because of who her mother is. Is that her sigil in a way? Like, is that her? That is that is her mother's mark, yeah. uh, which Tasha proudly bears uh, on her face. I love that. I feel like we're going to see a lot more uh, people tattooing that mark. Maybe not on their cheeks, but uh, in other places uh, on their bodies. Because that's, uh, I think, going to speak to a lot of people. It's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jeremy. If people have uh, any questions uh, about what's going on with Dungeons & Dragons, including uh, this uh, fascinating character of Tasha, how can they get in touch with you? I'm reachable on Twitter at Jeremy E. Crawford. Awesome. Great. Well, again, thank you. And uh, look for Tasha's Cauldron of Everything to be available on November 17th. Uh, Your local game store will have two covers available. The alternate cover is also very uh, evocative, a little bit different, got greens and beiges and all types of things in there that uh, really highlight her, the, the fey characteristics of Tasha. Uh, and then, of course, that will be available uh, for our UK or uh, friends in Australia or all over the world on December 1st. Um, and I look forward to people dumping in, jumping in and creating fun characters. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye.
Oh my gosh, I am very much into what is happening with Tasha and Igvilv. Uh, the fact that she's uh, descended or at least was raised by Baba Yaga herself. I love all the meta connections with it. Maybe she actually is from Earth. Who knows? Who I love knows? all that. We, we delved into a whole bunch of fun stuff with Jeremy on that special Youth Lori show. I love her more than ever now. I love the Tasha. She is <laughs> going to date me, I think, maybe. What? I don't think she is. What's Aaron going to say about that? She's going to be very excited. <laughs> Maybe she, she would. Loves witches' hats and tattoos on faces. Oh, face it's like tattoos. One of her, it's one of her go to. Uh, Every time I see her, she's got that witch's hat and that face tattoo just going. It's constantly. It's hard to hide. When swiping right on, uh, on, on, on goth people. <laughs> None of this is true. That's why it makes it so funny. Uh, yep. Let us. Call up our friends Ned Donovan and Brian David Jenkins and talk about mm. Ithaca and their amazing show. <laughs> Ned Donovan and Brian David Judkins from Encounter Party. Yes. <laughs> Encounter Party. <laughs> Love it. So good. We have to simulate the uh, the uh, you know studio the audience that we yeah. studio audience. Applause. Welcome, guys. Applause. I'm so excited that you're here. Yeah. Yes, We're really happy to be us. here. Thanks for bringing us on. Uh, so us. what, in a nutshell, can you tell us about Encounter Party uh, before we get into all of the crazy stuff that we're going to talk about, uh, you know, regarding mostly just uh, how Ithaca is gorgeous. But before that, <laughs> yes. we'll get to it uh, is. Encounter Party. It is. Let you guys, uh, and Ned, we'll start with, you know, throw it to you. What's Encounter oh, Party? Oh, Sure. Uh, Encounter Party is an audio adventure podcast of six professional voice actors battling through an epic Dungeons and Dragons campaign set inside the Magic the Gathering realm of Ravnica and then fine-tuned to edit out fluff and filler and deliver you pure adventure in under an hour episodes. That's How'd practiced. I do, Brian? That's oh. so good. You always answer this particular question, <laughs> so... Well, now... Br- I feel like we got yeah. through with you, Brian. Do, yeah, sounds, I was going to say, I need It sounds Brian rehearsed, just... and you recited it well. <laughs> totally natural and off the cuff. Yeah, I just thought of it. <laughs> how would, how also, would you also, describe... Also, he's the project manager, so what am I going to say on air? I'm going to say, you're wrong. <laughs> no, that's, that, that, that is exactly Anything it. to add? Yeah. That's good. When did you guys start? Actually, this is a this is a quick story, which is the good part of it. Um, in in December of 2018, um, after a little bit of some stuff that happened in the professional career, I pitched to Ned the idea. You know, we had spotted that D and D content, and you know, gaming content has been growing for the last decade, and we had kind of spotted the the serious rise of D and D content, and we had kind of we had looked at the market and kind of looked at everything that was happening. And we had some criticisms about how the genre was building itself. Um, and we thought we spotted what would have been a, a, I would say an optimized model on how to really be able to build a, a foundation to start really building this type of entertainment into what might be considered a new genre for the coming decade. So um, for me, I think I spotted uh, it was, I'm from Chicago. I did Second City. So it was that sort of like at its core, 
this is a storytelling game. So what if we got some professionals in the room who are skilled at, who have skills and education on building a story from scratch with nothing um, and then apply that to D&D? And what if we cut out everything? Like what, you know, the, the dice math, the table chatter, all that side stuff that really has no value for an audience. And we just cut it down to the actual adventure. Would this work? Um, Ned has been uh, very considering. Uh, he's been very considerate about agreeing to lots of crazy ideas that I have that aren't crazy. They all work. And um, we, uh, Ned is Ned has been doing podcasts for a long time. I also have done podcasts before, but Ned is is amazingly um, effective at indie project conception and and inception. So we. Uh, God, the turnaround was like, what, three months from conception to broadcast? Brian wow. called me in December. We recorded in late January. We February. released in yeah. end of February, beginning of March. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And so we we went from we went from conception. We threw it together. We had the campaign ready over the holidays. And then we had a nationwide um, audition process. Got a oh, group wow. of people together, flew them out to um, my neck of the woods outside of Chicago, and we bunkered down for a week and recorded the whole first season. Wait, so you auditioned people? Yeah, we did. Yeah, Brian and I uh, put out a casting call through our networks, and and we really we really reached out. We wanted to to find people outside of our sphere or within the general vicinity of our sphere who knew tabletop games and knew acting and storytelling and, and concept creation, but were living in a different place than Brian and I. Something that, that we were really conscious of is that, especially on a podcast where the audio is king, everyone needs to have a very unique voice, not just for how they sound, but also like how they approach the game and approach the table. And so for us, we really wanted to find people outside of our spheres because that would give us more opportunities to find unique voices that were just going to bring a completely different flavor to the table so that no matter who's listening to the show, there's something to grab for everyone. And we have, it's very easy for a couple of white guys to sit in a basement with some microphones and play D&D. And we had to be very conscientious about producing something that wasn't just quality content from a production standpoint, but that we were trying to do the best we could to be a little bit more represent, representative about what was out there. And we had some access to some networks. So we pulled in um, a fellow Ithacan from LA who's done cartoons and does film work out in LA. We ended up with some Broadway people from New York, some off-Broadway people from New York. Um, we ended up with a woman named Landry Fleming who I got connected to who's out here that does improv in Chicago. And then we kind of had a roundabout connection. The first person we hired was a woman named Sarah Babe who's up in... Um, Wisconsin in just outside of Milwaukee that Ned had got connected through another theater person. I was at a Gen yeah. Con doing a panel on film acting. Yeah. And uh, uh, I mentioned mm. that I had spent a year of my life at a theater in Wisconsin. And from the back of the room, this, this woman yelled, which one? And so we ended up chatting <laughs> and it turned out that her sister-in-law was my dresser for a year of my life at oh, this theater. And yeah. so we just got connected on Facebook. Yeah. And then when we were putting out this call, Sarah's a podcast veteran. She knows tabletop games better than anyone in this show. And yeah. when when we were putting together the call, I said immediately to Brian, like, we need we need to call this woman. I don't know her that well, but she she's going to bring something that that no one else could possibly bring. And spoilers, that was true. 
Yeah, it was it's it's a such a, a tricky situation because when you're dealing with casting with this sort of thing, you have to recognize that there's a double cast phenomenon mm. with a show like this. It's not just the people you have around the table, but because we're story focused, because we prior prioritize the narrative above everything else, it's more important that the characters that are in the story are infinitely more important than the actual people sitting around the table. So I think when you come to this particular genre and when it comes to gaming entertainment, while there is plenty of space for sort of jovial, sort of goofy play, for a program like we were trying to design, if you're going to have expert storytelling, you better have expert play as well. We need to have people who are veterans of the game who can navigate a game successfully and don't flounder because the program that we were trying to develop could fall off the rails instantaneously if we're trying to get an audience to buy into a group of people who are worse at the game than they are or don't observe what they can observe. So we ended up with this like amazing core group of people who have 20 plus years experience with D&D. And I think that has allowed us to do, you know, that has allowed us to have things like very interesting, very varied combat that doesn't completely derail the story. Everybody's building their characters in very, very interesting ways so that we get professional actors and voice actors, but you also get expert level gameplay. That's really interesting because, know. you know, so many times we we talk to a lot of streamers or people who do uh, either, you know, video play or, or audio play. And uh, it's actually one of the Shelly's kind of go-to questions is like, how do you tailor that experience for an audience versus a home game? Um, and it sounds like you guys had that kind of from the conception was to both to elevate for, for each of those aspects to elevate each other rather than, you know, show or um, highlight not necessarily the worst parts, but the, 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 the less entertaining or uh, uh, things that, that might turn off, you know, more viewers, right? Everything be- we do is audience focused. Every yeah. decision we make, every edit we do, you know, uh, I, I take the, the the front end of the editing, but we record in a way that is, um, we think unique to the space because we're all professional actors and our, our schedules are crazy and no one really knows where they're going to be in three weeks. And I mean, even in a pandemic, people are working. And so um, one of the things that we decided to do was instead of record once a month or every couple of weeks, we actually record once every six months. We all black out an entire week on our calendar and we all go to Chicago and we play for six to eight, eight to 10 hour days, we record the entire season in one long shot. Um, and so that way, then it's all on Brian and I to get it edited and put together. And we're not worried about like, can we make schedules work? Can we right. figure out calendars? And so that was a decision we made because we never wanted to miss a release day, right? We made that decision because we knew we never wanted to have a situation which would be exciting where one of our cast members books a movie and has to drop out for two months. And it's like, well, how do we record the show? We just didn't want to deal with it. And so that that decision was built on audience experience and making sure that we have a product for the audience whenever we say we're going to. There's so many things as we were conceptualizing the show. And I think really the big the big shift was season one was made because we wanted to see if we could make it and could we get any attention for it. And we did. And that was very, you know, humbling, but also invigorating. And so when we kind of went into season two, that was sort of the big moment that we had sort of realized the things that we didn't know we didn't know and really kind of cued into this type of, of entertainment. And the reason we got into it in the first place is because there are so many things like the double casting phenomenon that people weren't spotting that we figured might make a huge difference. D&D players on the whole are 
very, uh, they're puzzle people. They're usually very intellectual and smart and, and engaging people. And we wanted to make sure that we created a program that, that sounded and, and showed that we appreciated that and that we're considerate of the people who would be interested in this type of stuff. Um, because by getting these expert players, by, by treating the audience with the respect that we think they should carry themselves, um, it actually allows the program to be a little bit more intense than, than perhaps we were kind of feeling out in the beginning, whether or not people were going to want something that's a little bit more, you know, comedic or jovial or whether people were going to buy into the level of drama that we come from and the level of production that we come from. And we have found that by treating our audience with respect and treating them, acknowledging their own achievements within their community, it has allowed us to dive harder into the game and people will experience a real intensity. And I mean, death means death for us. If a character dies, it's gone forever because one of the things we looked at was, geez, if we try and pull a punch to keep a good character on the show, Game of Thrones style, are we going to lose faith with our audience? No, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult to write around, but we have to treat them with that respect. Mm. Um, and in order to be able to do that, we had to get the right people at the table. And we really wanted to make sure that the audience goes on the journey with us, right? We're not, we're not running a story that people wish they were a part of, and we're not running a story that people spend their time, uh, you know, watching us having already done it. And it, they're feeling like they missed out. Like, Every episode you listen to of the show, you feel like you're at the table. You feel like you're with these people. And a lot of that has to do with we made the decision to be a role-play-focused, story-focused podcast. And so by taking out a lot of player interaction, which we do sometimes get fans being like, I wish I knew more about the table. But we intentionally do that because it means that people can feel like they're in it more than listening to a bunch of people banter. Even if the banter is funny, it's a experience you're, it's a conversation you're not in, but if it's a game, if it's a story, if it's engaging, if it's compelling, if you're really worried that a character is going to pass away, if you're really worried that they're making the wrong decisions, if you think that they missed a puzzle, there's a whole set of episodes where we got our fans yelling at us in our Facebook group because they were like, you guys missed it. And Brian's over here like, yes, they did. (laughs) And, and, by the, time, the audience, by the time yeah. this actual episode gets released, we have we will have just crossed the hump of of uh, what will prove to be a lot of fan anger at me. Oh, <laughs> at you yeah. specifically at Brian. <laughs> I am also me. mad at Brian. Just, just to be clear, me. not at me. I'm mad no. at Brian too. You know what? I'm also mad at Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like I'm irri- is, I'm irritated. I'm not angry, is, but I'm irritated. That's the first step. <laughs> To being correct. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, I hated that. Shelly, we got to figure out how to get you mad at Brian. We'll work on it. It's yeah, getting right. there. It's getting there. My, uh, I'm a nice guy. The threshold is, is it's pretty I'm a good. nice guy. I'm not vindictive. I'm fair. Oh, you started, though, this podcast, before we even started recording, trying to get us angry at Ned. So That's it's, true. It's only he, does, step, he does. That is step did. two with being correct. <laughs> <laughs> the tide turned. The tide turned swiftly on Dragon Talk. Like we, uh, we, our anger goes everywhere um can we go back to the audition yeah. process because i am yeah. quite fascinated by it. Like, what was what was the audition process like i mean i know the things that you guys were looking yeah. for but how did you actually run this audition process god that was so uh i don't want to use the word clever because i don't think i have the right to say that but it was an interesting process because it wasn't uniform it wasn't I'll say it. it was very <laughs> clever both of you it wasn't but it, it was it was uh 
it was varied depending on who we were interviewing. It was actually really interesting because Ned has access to a, a, a very wide network of people being a, a professional in New York City. Um, and so when he casts a net out, he can wrangle a lot of interested parties. And Ned has so much success building things and starting projects that when Ned Donovan steps up and says, hey, I'm working on something, a lot of people pay attention. Go on. Just keep, nice. just keep, just keep doing this. This is great for me, Brian. Thank you. He doesn't oh, want you, us to and, be angry with him anymore. And you ruined it. We're, uh, lifting, <laughs> we're, up. we're lifting you up. That's so we, you know, it, it was interesting because it was depending on who we were. It depends on who we were talking to. Um, we, we interviewed Sarah Babe right off the get-go and that conversation was talking all about her podcasting experience. She's got a, a, a award-nominated podcast that runs, um, that reviews, uh, tabletop gaming from a literature aspect. Um, she's very active in the gaming community in the Midwest. So that interview was more about from a structural aspect. We were interviewing a, a wide breadth of people from, people who are voice actors, but we would find that maybe they don't have enough experience within the game that we wanted. Sometimes we were interviewing people. I remember one time we were having a conversation to a guy and we were talking about Overwatch because I was literally just trying to to plumb as much information mm -hmm. for him as to what type of class he likes to play mm -hmm. to try and get a sense. We, we, we've had people who are kind of interested and they were like, I love to play it. I'm a, I'm a chaotic neutral elf who like bard and we're like no this is no like that's not that does not oh. help so um for oh. for what we were actually oh, building, i'm a chaotic so neutral it, bard elf <laughs> turn in the tides <laughs> brian you turn the tides every time we're like no, no that's not the type of person here. we want the dm so so we were we're not condemning that type of gameplay but it was it was not what we needed it was not what we needed in right. the thing so we yeah, and we interviewed people all over the country um, that that we could sort of reach of people who might be interested, and then we settled on who we had. So we talked to you know we talked to other people who have kind of auditioned for things like this, uh, you know, in a in a in a way that almost was very similar to casting a show or mm -hmm. or a uh, sitcom or something like that. So did you approach this as like player first or or character first, or was it was it truly a, a mishmash of of those two? You needed to have both. It was it was one of the most challenging things, and I I can't believe that we ended up with the team we had. And we did have we did have one uh, casting change between season one and season two because there's a man named Eddie Cooper who's with us for the first season. Eddie has a very successful career on stage in New York City, and there were some conflicts to get to the second season. But mm. because we had that network, we were able to replace him with a with another actor, David Wynn, um, in a short period of time. So. Again, a lot of that has to do with the network, but but in order to deliver what we were hoping to convince the audience was what we thought to be an optimal way of doing this type of program, we really needed that mix. We we needed to have people. I think the only the only shift was that uh, Landry Fleming, who's on our show, has been a a longtime player of Pathfinder. And she was the only one who hadn't played 5e because she was currently playing Pathfinder. So, mm -hmm. but 5e is is easier than Pathfinder. Um, so that shift really didn't take any effort whatsoever. But we couldn't waste time learning about the game. We needed people who understood what they were doing so that we could do what we were doing. And we've been treating this show like a TV shoot, which is a slight allude to something we might talk about later in the interview. But um, getting all of that stuff on the table 
out of the way as fast as possible allows us to focus on what's the primary thing, which is the audience and mm-hmm. the story. And we didn't want to waste time having them watch us get comfortable with each other. We had to get together and, and get moving. Yeah, but how did you get comfortable with each other so quickly? Because like a lot of times like groups come together because it's like we're friends. We're already we already know each other. And like, let's just add D&D to the list of things we do together. And you kind of did it the opposite. And like, I mean, the chemistry some, is really important. Yeah. Something I said to Brian when we were when we were planning this, you know, I, I, I make a lot of projects and I've always said, like, your pilot episode needs to be solid or no one's going to make it to episode five. Like, it doesn't matter if episode six is good. If one through five don't get people to six, then what are we doing? And um, so the short answer is like, that was a big concern of ours. It's why uh, I would say our audition process was as much an interview process for other people to meet us as it was for us to meet them because we needed to know that there was some kind of like a good, just like instinctive vibe of like banter because you need that at the table because honestly and truthfully, I met Landry Fleming for the first time about 35 minutes before we recorded the first episode. <laughs> and that's, and that's true. Yeah. And and we didn't have a chance to like, you know, we didn't spend a day getting to know each other. We had a couple Zoom calls and we we built parties together, but a lot of it had to do with kind of people's background in improv, but also everyone comes from a, a, a theater background. And it it reminded me a lot of of, you know, first day of rehearsal. Just if first day of rehearsal gets published. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But even like a, like There's, a, a cast. So there is, so there is, there are a lot of tricks in the actual writing of the campaign. And this is the first time anybody's really grilled us on this particular thing because there's so many problems that have been solved before they even became problems. And you wouldn't know this without sitting down and having a, a discussion like this. We knew that that was going to be a problem. So when I was writing the campaign, the initial first sort of beat of the campaign is the fact that you have five people from five different backgrounds who have to figure out how to work together. And so people were figuring each other out on the table through their characters, which was the important thing. And that's one of the reasons that there were so many problems that were solved by deciding to make Ravnica the setting. And we were able, a lot of this is my responsibility. A lot of this is on my end as the guy who's at the head of the table is to find ways to turn things that are problems or are hiccups or issues and find a way to add resolving that stuff into part of the story. Mm. And that's one of the reasons that we just have to be conscientious of that stuff. We have to be considerate One thing that we always say more than anything is we want audiences to understand how conscientious and considerate we are of their time. D&D is a long game. It can take a lot of time to do. And sometimes doing a weekly broadcast can take hours upon hours. We didn't feel like we had the time to commit to that from a production standpoint. And we didn't feel like people should have to take that much time to get to know us. Asking somebody to buy into a new show is a big deal, especially when we've got Uh, I think 53 episodes out, 54 maybe. 54 as of Tuesday. And even us saying our episodes are short, that's only 54 hours of content. That is a big ask to ask some people. And because we are from the industry we are, I I think the guilt that we feel sometimes (laughs) of of daring to go into this industry and, and attempting to have the audacity to waste people's time like that is just unacceptable. So by tackling those problems as best we can and trying to get that stuff out of the way, 
is one of the, a lot of that because we have professionals at the table because we people who know what they're doing, but then also finding a way to, if we cannot avoid something like that being a part of my job as, as the sort of main writer and the DM at the head of the table is to find a way to curve that into an experience that's valuable for the audience. And that's why the very first three episodes of the campaign are the way that they are. You don't waste any time getting into the action with the first campaign. It does roll and it's interesting for people right from the get-go. I like that you approached it as a, as a pilot or at least a first yeah. kind of arc because that is lost on a lot of people sometimes where you're like, oh, I'm just going to you know, scroll into it slowly yep. and get going. But, you know, you really do need to grab people. I mean, and for Dungeon Masters out here or listen to it, you also, to a certain extent, need to grab your players with something that feels exciting, like right off the bat. And you guys uh, seem to have that right instinct to to design and write it so that you're, you're, you're getting the best out there right away. Um, but I want to I move on to, uh, I feel like we've danced around the fact that you went to Ithaca College. Uh, three yes. of the people on this yes. call went to Ithaca College. Yeah. Uh, Hey. I lived. I, I have a connection there only because I lived uh, on Ithaca College campus for a summer while I worked at the ha- Hangar Theater uh, as a yes. carpenter. Hey. <laughs> so, oh my God! We oh, all. Oh God, love the Hangar. It's so great. Right? Isn't it? Wait, wait, wait. When were you there? When were it you was nineteen ninety-seven. No. Yeah. That so a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But I met a lot of NYU uh, students there because they also had uh, that like program where they would go up and 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 uh, uh, be in the conservatory conservatory there, and it was awesome. Uh, one of the you know formative experiences of my life. I was like a freshman in college, I think, uh, uh, at the time. So it's love an that amazing place. place to be in the summer once all the college kids are gone. Yes, that is, true. <laughs> that is very true. Ithaca is an amazing place to go to college, and when you're not in college, it's a great place to be when no one else is around. Yeah. It's very, it's, it's, like, once you're yeah. done with college, like, I don't want to be there. I'm like, oh, no. I, I can't stand these college kids. They're everywhere. No. But, yeah. but we, uh, Andrew, Andrew Krug, who was on our show, went to college with me. Uh, we graduated at the same time. Um, Eddie Cooper, who was on season one, was in college. He graduated right before my freshman year. And then I graduated right before Ned's freshman year. So many of us are from Ithaca. The oh only gosh. two of us who were actually in school together were Andrew and myself, but we're all uh, we're all uh, Ithaca Bomber alumni. Were you all yeah, theater majors? Yeah, yeah. I was too. Hey! Hey! When were you there? Oh, like 150 years ago. Uh, that's <laughs> a long time. Yeah, <laughs> at the founding yeah. of the. I mean, college. it was like like barely a college. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Uh, no, we tablets. we uh, Brian and I met through the alumni world, and then um, back in 2016, I think. Uh, I was at Gen Con with a different project and I saw on Facebook Brian Brian setting up to for a booth at Gen Con and I think oh, I texted weird. him being like, hello, uh, we don't really know each other. Are you at Gen Con? <laughs> uh, I, and we ended up meeting up and then that was like, we started meeting up at cons where he'd be there and I'd be there and we kept chatting and then he called me in 2018 and was like, I have an idea, which is the scariest thing Brian ever says to me. <laughs> and uh, 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 and every time he does it, I, I get scared and then he's usually right and that idea turned into Encounter Party. Oh my God. I know. That is so cool. It's weird because I can't remember a time not remembering you. That Aww. just speaks to the power of me. Or yeah. the amount of uh, inebriance you consumed. Uh, either one. <laughs> <laughs> Either or, really. Or Probably both. Let's just say both. Maybe the thought of me causes him to be inebriated. That's worse. Ooh, he's drunk on Did you. Did you guys play D&D while at college? 
Yes, but uh, no, I never played well, actually, D&D. I played Big Damn Heroes. I played the Firefly game. Actually, Ravnica oh. came out while I, original Ravnica came out while I was in college and I played a lot of Magic the Gathering in college. I don't think I had a D&D table. In I, I was playing a lot of Magic. Yeah. I've always told actors they should play D&D. It takes a lot D&D. of your life in Ithaca. Like, it takes so much of your life because I, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know what other programs are like, but we got... Like we got school credit for being a part of productions and we were expected to be a part of something. And I feel like, I feel like I did more school than other people because um, yeah. you had classes straight through to like 11 o'clock, depending and, if you were working on a project or something like that. Too. And school was just putting on a show. So it was like, yeah. oh yeah, I got, got, I'm like going to do that credit. all the time. Yeah. And yeah, th- the Ithaca program runs itself according to just as close to union standards as it can. So it wasn't just working on theater stuff. It was, you were working and they had a theater that had a subscription and had a season and stuff like mm-hmm. that too. Yeah. So like, like real people, very no connection like people. to Ithaca yeah. came to the shows. Yeah. Like actual yeah. Wild. I blew my mind every time. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Go bombers, everyone. Yeah. Great school. Hey, Fantastic Shout I'm, out to Dillingham. But I'm still not going to answer my phone when the alumni association <laughs> <laughs> How do they find uh, they, they send actually, a check every now and again? They actually called me once while I was at a table of bombers in New York no debating D&D. And uh, all I did was ask her the rules of jump. I was like, do you play D&D? And she was like, no. And I was like, cool, can you Google some stuff? Because we're in a fight. And that was my conversation uh, for money. And they've never called me again. <laughs> oh, maybe I should try that. I used to work for Alumni Hall at, at Ithaca. Huh? And it was the worst job ever. <laughs> like calling like I do. stodgy old ladies like me and who are like, I don't want to talk to you. No, I do give money every year, but they always ask for more than I offered. And then I pretend to ask my wife and I said, my wife says that I can donate this much money. I'll send you a check. And then that's it. And then do you, do you actually send the check? Cause I had a lot of alumni say that to me and we never got their check. I cannot express louder or deeply enough how proud of my education I was from Ithaca college. It was a fantastic experience. The friends and the faculty that I got to spend time with there was outstanding and I would not have the career that I would have if I had gone to any other school. We should get Ithaca College to sponsor this podcast. Ithaca College, <laughs> Ithaca College. repost this episode. <laughs> Ithaca alumni. Oh my God, we could be in the and encounter party. This is your donation. The, the magazine, the IC. What's the IC? IC view. IC view. Yeah. I see you. You guys should be in there. Are you in there? Um, Uh, (laughs) you know all you have to do is call them and they'll be like yeah well totally because i i've been written about in icvu we're on it about D. &D. it's fancy yeah google past archives if the next like once we get to season four and the next iteration of the show comes up then we'll then we'll call them then we'll we'll get attention for that okay so can we want to dance around that Let's dance around Let's it. Do it's a little dance. Show. You keep alluding to something that you can't really talk about, but a little bit you can. No, we, how we, cool we it can't. Would be. We can talk about it, but it's weird because we can. It's it's kind of like I'm, a bunch of Swiss cheese right now. We can talk about the packaging and a lot of stuff, but but we can't necessarily talk about the ingredients. Tell us what you can <laughs> so, tell us. Yeah, so we are we are barely into the beginning of season three of Encounter Party, which will wrap up the Ravnica campaign. This will wrap up campaign number one. And this is what confuses people sometimes. It's that we treat this like a TV shoot. We've already played it. We've already finished it. We are done. Our job is now just for you guys. So we then get to be actively helping the audience participate in the community and stuff like that too. However, 
we knew that this campaign was never going to make it past this arc anyway, and we are transitioning into what was sort of the full goal that we were hoping to achieve with Encounter Party, and that is that we are crafting the show into a multi-cam video series that we are aiming for a streaming network. Um, and what that means is that basically we're going to video, but because of the unique format and the way that we've structured the show, um, using a lot of techniques and genre techniques that have been developed in the last year, um, it will be a different experience. We are we are stepping far away from anything that might appear to be mimicking streaming shows or anything like that. There will be cams, but it will have hard cuts and we'll have a larger design budget and a sound stage. And uh, we are going we are currently building a uh, entirely new world um, that will be there. So it will be a new world, a new experience, a new adventure. And we are continuing to sort of bushwhack our way through this new thing to try and figure out what are all of the opportunities available within this particular genre. And we think that we are very much on the cusp of producing a program that will really sort of showcase what you can really do with this type of content. Something that I, I kind of want to circle back to is that is that we we never set out to be someone's competition. Brian and I are of the mind that if someone is doing something really well, we'd rather support them in their thing and make something else. And so it took Brian pitching me on a show that was edited and recorded in such a fashion with an assembled cast in such a fashion that it felt like something new and unique and exciting to me to really get me excited about Encounter Party. And that that forwards onto this new campaign into this new, this new world we're building. We are putting together a show using techniques that we have gained over our time in the industry and working with a variety of, of products and productions to build a, a a show unlike anything anyone's really seen before it will feel wonderful it it should it should make people experience recorded gaming in a way that that feels like they're at the table in a way that no one's really found yet that we have found and that's why we started on this project was can we build something entirely new to excite people to experience something like they've never experienced before Drawing a parallel might, because this is all sort of a, a weird abstract concept that doesn't necessarily ground anything to make people go, ooh, ah, but but I, I'll draw a parallel to the program as of now, and, and, and hopefully that will illustrate this uh, in a more exciting way. And that is that because of the way that we record our show, because of the way that we've structured it, we are able to do things writing-wise and campaign-wise that no other program can do. When it comes to the Ravnica campaign, we've been able to structure something that is in itself a mystery, a, a mystery thriller, but it is structured in a way that rewards multiple listen-throughs. So rather than some linear campaigns where you end up in Nation 4 and everything that happened in Nation 2 is just irrelevant now and just something back in the mystery, the story continues to wrap around itself so that by the time you hit the end of season two, if you go back and listen to season one, it's a different experience because of new information and character development, things that have gotten revealed. And the same thing will happen with season three. By the time you reach the end of this particular campaign, 
if you then go back to the very first episode and listen to the entire campaign again, it will be a different story. Um, and you're going to have to listen to it to confirm whether or not that's BS. Cause it isn't like, it is just <laughs> a different tale. Um, and we can play with that type of structure in a way that other iterations of this program can't. And when we go to video, we never intend to lose the audio, but we're already thinking about ways that will play with that type of stuff visually. We are very audience participatory. Like I said, we really want to avoid, I've, I've called it the Ocean's Eleven effect. Mm -hmm. which is when you watch Ocean's Eleven as an audience member, what you get to do is you got to watch 11 famous actors have a lot of fun on set that you don't get to be a part of. And your job as an audience member is to just sort of stare there in awe and go, wow, Matt Damon is so great. But, But that film purposefully keeps information from you for the benefit of the storytellers. And... I'm not a super fan of that. I much prefer things like Columbo and Poirot, where you're encouraged to play along. We're already working on that for the next show, and it's going to be a visual element. So we're designing the show in a way that uses um, filming techniques. You know, there's a lot of stuff being developed as far as like filming live theater and people who are looking for improvised or theatrical experiences, converting them to a digital format. So we are, we have been playing and constructing some of those models to turn a tabletop role-playing game show into a visual experience that requires and rewards audience involvement and participation. Sweet. Okay. I'm trying to wrap my brain around. There's a lot of unpack there. Yeah. All I want to know is, will there be fight choreography? Uh, (laughs) Uh, both Brian and I are <laughs> professional fight directors, yes. so now there might be. I I am past my stuntman days because I'm in my mid-30s now, and uh, I don't need any more of that. But uh, I'm past my stuntman yeah. days because I had a knee replacement, but yeah. like maybe. Um, you can teach others. Here's what I will say. Here's what I will say. We are very aware of the sort of static nature that can happen when a table gets involved. We're already, we're much in the same way that we've looked at Encounter Party the way that we started and we identified, here's an idea that we have. Does this idea work? Okay, let's draw attention to everything that could possibly be a problem and get in the way of this idea and make this not worth listening to. We're already ahead on that when it comes to season four and the, the, the new world is called Isla Brea. And so when it comes to the Isla Brea campaign, we're already identifying some of those things when we get in, because again, I know we keep saying this, but we're audience conscious. I don't need anybody to point a camera at me to play D&D with my friends in a basement. If we're going to make this, we have to make it from the viewpoint of the people watching it on their screen. So we're already kind of tackling, being conscientious of their time, trying to figure out where their focus should be. What can we offer them? How Mm -hmm. can they participate? And again, because we are narrative focused, the story is going to involve and reward participation. There are a lot of tricks that we're implementing that we are pretty confident because we've already tested them in this season of Encounter Party in ways you will never know. Uh, but we've already tested a lot of these theories and they've all worked. So we're very excited. Are there any, you don't have to give away all your tricks, but I'm just yes. like, if, if there, there's dungeon masters who want to run a very story focused campaign, 
like yep. maybe you know not to the level that you guys are doing it but they want <laughs> to do like are there any tricks that you can share that would help make make that oh my god there's so many easier. we we wrote a seminar about this i mean there's a lot <laughs> we we did a seminar about this at gen con there is a lot that would require a whole <laughs> I, don't remember uh, re, re, uh, I would say yeah. i would say uh, the, the number one thing that I can tell you is that, uh, you cannot, you cannot script scenes. There are four to seven of you at a table. It's not just your story. Um, so set your checkpoints, set your unmissable information, and then just let the gap get filled in by your players. Okay. That works. Sounds like a good, how to be a DM segment. Trust your, trust your... <laughs> Trust your table to handle the story because it's really their adventure, not yours. Um, that's a good. I mean, that's a really good yeah. piece of advice. I mean, I think obviously with with planning out a show like this, you have to develop a lot of material and content. Um, but I love the idea uh, as a dungeon master of just being like, "Here's uh, here's the information you know. I'm not going to make up anything else because yeah. it's I, it's up to you to discover it. And if we reach a point where it's something is not predetermined." You know, we'll just we'll just improvise, and and then all of a sudden it becomes canon and make it go, uh, and that's you know a lot of the fun and the and the um, thrill that people get while playing Dungeons and Dragons is that that kind of cooperative improvising that happens. How do you balance that with the fact that you do have to plan? You have to plan out a season. You have to plan out how these things work. Uh, you mentioned the unmissable information, but you know what is the unmissable information, and how do you determine that? So I am an eternal DM. There's no avoiding it anymore. <laughs> I relish the days where I get the chance to build a player character. Uh, although, funnily enough, I usually build uh, fighters that don't like talking to people <laughs> because I try and <laughs> when I'm sitting at the table, I try and let other people build sort of super fun stuff. And then I'll just, oh, I'll build a fighter that works. And then that way we can't die. Um, you know, there's there's a there's a unique format when it comes to a DM, and that is, you know, what do you want to get out of it? Um, I have been a writer and worked in entertainment for a long time. I've worked in illustration. So for me, the major rewards that I get come from before the actual campaign. Uh, now, this this may not be for everybody, but you know, there's absolutely zero reason that you should try and avoid pre-generated modules. Adventure League is printing out amazing stuff every three months. Like, go play with something that somebody's already built from you. It saves you a lot of time. Um, but for, for me, I, I get the reward out of the creation. So letting people come and play and interact. You know, I do voiceovers. So getting a chance to do a wacky voice, whether or not the people at the table accept it or reject it, is, <laughs> is, is part of my fun. So I would say that if you're a type of person who gets rewarded with creativity, <laughs> if you get rewarded with creativity, it's, it's, a, great, it's a great job to step in. Um, but, you know, when I also get a great deal of personal and professional satisfaction rewarding my friends and providing opportunities for my friends to succeed, it's a personal view of mine. Um, so when it comes to creating this particular show, we built something that would, I came from the standpoint with the understanding that I'm at the head of the table. I have to help, but I also have to be the bad guy. So I accepted that role because in the story, that's what we needed. And we wrote a mystery that would allow the audience and the play, you 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 put the audience on the side of the players, right? 
you guys are all in one group, everybody versus me. So you created a situation that required investigation, puzzles, creativity, working together as a community, and then they get rewarded by progressing forward in the story. And that reward is the trigger that that you need narratively to get people to kind of keep pushing forward, keep pushing forward. Um, and, you know, when it comes to this particular campaign, I think if you listen to Encounter Party, if you're not familiar with it, um, you will immediately see what that means. Got it. So this new world, you've created a yes. new world. Okay, for season four. Yes. Does that mean there's new characters? Yes. So Isla Brea is an entirely original world. Myself and Andrew Krug on the show uh, are currently designing it, but I am writing the campaign. So it's sort of a weird 60-40 situation. Um, Isla Brea itself is a planet that was ripped apart when the god that lived at its core abandoned uh, the world forever. So at one point centuries ago, this god that nobody really knew existed left the planet, and in the process, uh, the world broke apart. It's hit a level of homeostasis, so it is a landscape of floating islands and airships and all sorts of, of original takes on familiar things and new takes on new things. Um, it will be an entirely new setting. It will be an entirely new party. Um, we have uh, we already know what that party is going to be. Actually, we've already cast the D and D characters, oh. uh, and they are phenomenal. And I think the exciting thing about Isla Brea is that the design process has been completely transparent. Um, we have been very active and vocal. Just this month of October, we've been using Inktober to start teasing some of the major terminology that we'll be using. Um, and actually, by the time this episode airs, so two weeks after-ish when we record, um, there is a teaser image on the website right now. But by the time you guys are listening to this, if you go to EncounterParty.com, we will have some more information up. We will have some concept sketches, a little bit more mm-hmm. written work and stuff. And, and over the next couple of months, as we finish out season three and then go into the development process for season four... Our hope is to get everybody as educated on the world as possible so that everybody's an expert so that we don't have to waste your time learning about a new world when we begin the campaign. We can just jump in. That's a good idea. Keeps people interactive, too, yeah. for the next couple of months. Like, you, we don't have to disappear. You can stay with us and you can learn and get tips and strategies and world build and creative and all that stuff, even though we may not be releasing an actual episode. Well, and it's it's for me, you know, I'm I'm a producer of the show, but I'm also a player in the show, right? And I I didn't know Ravnica when we when we jumped into Encounter Party and have fallen in love with this setting and and this world is so rich and as a as a player, the the introduction of the guilds creates such exciting and interesting role play right off the bat. Like it it just gives you so it gave me such a better roadmap to play within. And so as we're coming to the end of this campaign, something that that I would like to say, I know very little about Isla Brea. It is very stressful to produce a show where you're not allowed to know what the show is. I do want to say that on the record, (laughs) Brian has a significant number of knowledge that I produce and I don't get to know, and it's horrifying uh, all the time. But what I can say uh, about Isla Brea is that I am just as excited in my dives into what I've gotten to learn in the building of this. It, it feels to me the way that that it felt when I got to know Ravnica, and that's really just exciting as a player. Yeah, that is exciting. Ravnica has so many successful elements. It's really a fant- it, it really is the pinnacle, I think, of Magic the Gathering creation. 
And if anybody listens to the show, plays Magic the Gathering, and is interested in any of the three sets that have come out, all we can say is we really know Ravnica. We really know Magic the Gathering. You really should check it out if you care about lore whatsoever, because we really think that this is a different way for you to experience the game, because Magic is a game. It is mechanic-based. But the way that we've been able to implement that into narrative, I think, will be very exciting. Um, And... We've taken a lot of those aspects that are very successful as far as, you know, there are guilds in Ravnica, but one of the great things about Ravnica is that any person who experiences Ravnica can identify with a group of people that are in there, and any group of people has an avenue of success in Ravnica. So it doesn't matter how you identify as a person, you can find success in Ravnica. And we've we've taken that concept and fractured it into one of three pillars when it comes to Isla Brea. And we have found that we have tried very much to build a positive functional world. It is a world of that works and that functions. And, but there are a lot of dichotomies. And so by giving people a chance over the next couple of months to learn more and more and more about Isla Brea, we hope that they will do what we intend them to do, which is find pockets of this world that they identify with over one of three concepts, faith, government, and economy. And they will have a strong opinion about one of those things, one way or the other. And then when we get into the actual campaign, the main focus of the campaign will be about A or B, what are you willing to gain? What are you willing to give up? And there are going to be a lot of permanent changes depending on that is. So it's going to be a campaign that is ultimately about accepting the consequence of your choices. Wow. Well, I feel like we've heard a lot uh, from the Dungeon Master side of things. And as you said, Ned, you're also, you know, a player. uh, And I'd love to kind of hear you know, your, your discussion about what it's like to be as a player in Ravnica, but then also if you can tell us anything about your, your, your player character that will be for this, for this new campaign. So I'll, I'll, I'll disappoint you first. Oh. I cannot tell you anything <laughs> about my new player character. Good. Okay. So it's Got a it. merman so I will, barbarian. I will start it. with, <laughs> it's funny not a enough. merman because we're in the sky. <laughs> That's what makes it weird. They swim through the air. <laughs> Actually, the the oceans and seas dropped out (laughs) and they aren't there. So uh, long story short, everything that was in the water is now in the sky. There you go. So there's no birds, there's floating fish. Done and done. Floating fish. All right, but now tell us about your Ravnica character then. So so, uh, 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 when first you listen to Encounter Party, you shall meet Mm. human fighter Celestia Mm. Revan Mm. Ravel. Mm. Uh, And that he is a wonderful character that I uh, uh, highly love playing. He is a... a, um... So when I joined this campaign and Brian was talking to me about Ravnica, I really wanted to connect to the... um... I really wanted to connect to the guild system in a way that spoke to me. And so I built this fighter character who um, is figuring out the guilds almost at the same time that he, him, that I was figuring out the guilds. Oh, cool. And I wanted him to be exploring Ravnica a little bit as sort of a, a, a an initiate of the Selesnia rather than a, a kind of ingrained character because I didn't want to come into the campaign speaking overly confidently about something that, as a character, that I myself wasn't yet confident in. And... Um, so for me as a character, it's a lot of exploration. It's a lot of development. I, I take a lot of cues from my players at the table. I think uh, one of the things that has always been fun for me in D&D is how do characters and players 
interact with themselves, right? Like, how do I, Ned, interact with my character? But also, how do I get to interact with other people at the table? And um, so for me, a lot of my path inside this campaign has been entirely exploration. It's been, uh, in many ways, I was the least knowledgeable coming onto the table. And so my path was learning about that. That's great, though. That's a really important I think in all storytelling, but especially genre storytelling, to have a character that is like that, that is the audience surrogate who is asking the questions that the audience might ask if they're unfamiliar with Ramnica and things like that. So, you know, that that served many purposes, I think, uh, and it was a good choice. Well, I it's- also think as you listen to the show, like everyone's characters they shine. People really built characters that fundamentally play to their own strengths and personalities. Mm. And then the, the talent that they bring with them allows them to infuse them with these such fascinating choices that are always so driven by character and emotion and interaction. Like nothing, nothing. I can tell you honestly and truthfully, there isn't anything contrived at our table. I'm the editor. The only things I'm pulling out are the things that slow the story down for the listener. But what you hear on the audio is the exact experience we went through playing it. And that's only possible because of the amount of, um, grace that the other players at the table bring to the table the amount of of willingness to play and understand and highlight and 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 play into other people's stories while getting to have their own um it's really magical to be a part of and it's magical to listen to and i get to have the experience first because i'm the only person who hears the raw audio. Mm. And so uh, uh, I get to hear that experience that we go through and get to figure out which parts are audience and which is just for us. I send little like snippets to the cast a lot in like a group text. So I'll be like, this isn't going to end up in there, but wasn't it fun when Ned burped? Like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like and uh, uh, those are experiences that, that I think because everyone is so focused on making sure that the story is king and that the characters are honestly portrayed, the experience the audience gets to go through is actually very close to what we get to go through at the table. That's super it's cool. It's really phenomenal to watch the people at the table. They make my job so easy, honestly. It, there, there's a lot of planning that goes into it, but... I will you know, definitely D&D. say, as far as us interviewing yeah. you guys, you guys have made it very easy. No kidding. Uh, <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> so I can see the qualities uh, that would exist in yours as well. D&D can be a very empowering experience and give people a lot of chances to, I don't want to say play out fantasies, but it can give people a lot of opportunities to explore different successful avenues. Um, But when we got everybody to the table, it was so interesting that when we got these professionals to sit down and they were talking about the characters that they were building, and we did work a little bit on it. Like we we need to build a party that can navigate, right? Mm -hmm. We can't have five wizards because the minute somebody attacks them with a spear, they're all dead. Um, So we did have to think about that. But it was so interesting to watch these people assign different guilds and find things that they were attracted to, but then immediately build characters based on things that they had to overcome rather than what they were good at. And I, I have to continuously talk about Sarah Babe because she is the absolute heart of our table. And she built a character named Fakara, who is a soldier And we all sat down at the table and started introducing the characters and everybody was expecting her to build, I am a soldier, I am the tough one, I am the law and order. And she built Fakara to be like a 19-year-old recruit. She's a minotaur, but she's like a 19-year-old recruit who's only been in the army for like two years. And all of that, yeah, Boros, and all that sort of like pre-programmed archetype stuff that is so easy to fall into with this type of program. It's so easy to fall into characters and storylines and things that everybody has heard a thousand times. And with one choice, 
she built one of the most interesting characters at our table or that I've ever seen by just deciding I am a soldier who has all the ideals of the soldier, but I have zero experience. And it has made the the most the most fascinating episodes that we've had have honestly been things that revolve around her growing. That's funny. If I have any advice for players, and really I think it's something that I learned from being at this table. I mean, I, I I've been part of it in improv training and theater training and as an actor, as someone who's who's worked all over the country in film and TV and theater, like I, I get it conceptually, but it, at the table, it was the first time I realized like the way that you make a successful party and that party has cohesion and that party is unified in their own story, but also in working together is that as a player, you have to make it so that never is your own story the most important that you're trying to tell. You have to tell other people's stories and their stories have to be the most important because they'll give you that space to explore your own. But we've all been at tables where a player decides like, this is my moment and they derail the entire session. And we can't do that in an experience that's built for the audience. And so something that I really learned from working with these people, and you know, like Landry Fleming is the expert at this, and I met her the day we started recording, is like if you make everyone else's story and experience the important part of your gameplay, then all choices are positive, even when you're butting heads. Because you are intentionally trying to further someone else's story and someone else's goals. And in doing so, you make very compelling audio that never has a drop, like a railroad. We never come to that kind of a pause because there's never an impasse. David Huynh, who was the new person we brought onto the show, is phenomenal at that. He plays a character on our show who's very controversial and has very different viewpoints. And he butts heads and pisses people off quite a lot. But because he's so good at what he does performance-wise, you immediately can feel at the table that while the character is a bit of an aggravating SOB, he is always presenting situations that the other players are overcoming by growth. He forces other people at the table to grow, to best him. And that is, watching him navigate that with ease is just so impressive That's so cool. to, to be a part of. Yeah, and it reminds me of, you know, as you were talking, Ned, uh, and you, Brian, about uh, letting other characters take the spotlight and supporting them. It reminds me of like how, oh, yeah, in a musical uh, that you might be watching, there's certainly songs that have a spotlight on a certain character, but that there's always the ensemble behind them who is lifting them up and and, you know, literally with their own voices and make that happen. So... I want to end this with a pitch to you guys uh, for the next iteration of what you guys are doing. Can we please have crazy ex-girlfriend style uh, musical numbers from the <laughs> cast uh, as as part of what it's you're Greg's trying to dream? But don't make it silly. <sighs> Go serious. I've I've pitched <laughs> something like this to Ned before. We haven't quite figured out a way to do it. Yes, Greg. The short answer is yes. <laughs> yes, and that's what uh, I wanted. Uh, the long answer is Brian and I both have a long career of making successful musical projects, and it's something that every couple months we're like, "Have we figured it out yet?" And the answer is like, "Not quite." But when we figured it out, you better believe it's it's coming. <laughs> awesome. I haven't I it. haven't hit the moment where I call Ned and say. I have an idea. <laughs> and, but it's coming. and because we haven't hit that, everything that we're conceptualizing is probably already done. But a musical episode of Encounter Party will come someday. All right. Make it a special. It. I like that. We come from musical backgrounds. We have a cast of professionals, many of whom come from musical theater. I know. And I mean, uh, uh, most of my projects that aren't Encounter Party are musical films. So, like, yes. 
<laughs> you seem right. like the right group to make Greg's dream finally come true. <laughs> we Just got you, Greg. Greg. No pressure. But... I want something, you know, Jesus Christ superstar rock opera, but, uh, you know, D&D. Gen Con 2022. Yeah. All right. I'm in. I'm all in. I'll be your first uh, uh, cheerleader to make it happen. And then you You're will be, be in it. That's an That's what ICV. you don't realize. You're the missing link yes. here. Ooh, finally. Someone can see... But I'm going to write a musical you have no idea that you're in and you have to do it anyway. Nice. As long as I can do like a talk uh, singing. I just pitched an idea. (laughs) Could be right now. I'll be a They Might Be Giants style talk singing song. I can can do it. All right. They might might be giants. Gen Con 2019. They were there. It was great. We'll talk to the Johns. We'll get them going. Uh, All right. What's the best way for folks to uh, start listening and or uh, pay attention to your next visual, visual project? Scream our name in a public place. <laughs> and don't, please, that's just like, please don't do that. Uh, no one goes to public. We did do it now. once when we were filming. Someone saw a D&D shirt and they're like, hey, nice shirt. And David Wynn goes, listen to Encounter Party. And the guy went, okay. <laughs> so it does it's like, it work. <laughs> it's like busking. It works. Uh, it was one of my favorite moments in our entire show. We were getting groceries. But um, uh, 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 EncounterParty.com is your, is your stop. Uh, everything is there. You can find the episodes. You can find the information on uh, as the, the new campaign starts to develop. You'll get to see more and more and more there. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, we're Encounter underscore Party on Twitter, Instagram, just Encounter Party on Facebook. Um, and join us. We have a Facebook discussion group where, where we have the party people are all in there debating theories, talking to each other. You know, we've made this community that is so vibrant and wonderful, and we'd love to have you join us. Uh, and we're also over on Discord as part Part of the cast junkie discord server and so you can come hang out with us there and they want to discuss it with you because as you yes. get in and you start participating with the mystery because of the cyclical nature of what it is it people are going through the show multiple times trying wow. to uncover things and so you're not behind you're always even if you start the show the minute you stop listening to this episode or if you're already halfway through it everybody is kind of with each other at the same spot. So you don't have to be, you don't have to feel like you're not a part of the group because people want to talk with you. They want to see what you've uncovered. They want to get your opinions because that's also the nature of Ravnica. So jump in, join the party, come have fun. New listeners are often coming into Facebook being like, I just started the show. And then they start a thread with theories as they go through the show. They'll, they'll say like, well, here's where I am. And I think this, and you'll see other party people come in and be like, oh my God, I never considered that. Like, it's wonderful to watch. Oh, that's cool. How fun. Party people, say hi. And then, you know, we're wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs> I don't know we're where there. John <laughs> Lovett. No, but it works. Thank you Party guys people. so much. Uh, sorry we went a little bit over, but it was just fascinating talking to yeah, you and hearing, hearing really, your... Really, really interesting. Yeah. Thank you. You Thank gave you us so extra time. We're not going to fight that. <laughs> Thank you. Well, you're bombers. So bombers it's get go extra bombers. Time. <laughs> it's an automatic extra go 10. Bombers. Go bombers. Did anyone at Ethica Thank actually you, go to any of the... the Sporting events? <laughs> yes. Yes. Really? I, uh, I was, yes. I was, I was a member of the Bleacher Bums. I had the shirt. We harassed at Cortica every Cortica year. Cup. The Cortica Jug. Cortica Jug. We, we rarely won that as much as we think we did, even though we had a much better ranked team 
We rarely won the Cortica Jug. But, what is the Cortica uh, Jug yeah, for? I had, uh, what is it? Sporting SUNY Cortland versus Ithaca SUNY College for the Ithaca. number one game that doesn't matter, but it, was it a, matters. It to was us. a rivalry. It matters in your it heart. It was a rivalry. What sport? Uh, we had football. 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 Oh, no one cares about football. We had, I, thought I was we hoping it was like good, ultimate frisbee or something. Crew. Cool. No, we had a we crew. had a very good division three <laughs> football team. <laughs> That's Cornell. Leave that to them. They're they've got the crew thing going on. Ithaca had a crew team. I mean, everybody does, but yeah. Not everybody. Cornell, Cornell had a good water around you. <laughs> yeah, right. They had a good, they had an Ivy League oh, one. Cornell. Yes. yes, I attended the football games. We are also sports nuts. I am we too. Sport, but, yeah. we, we make sports jokes every once in a while on the podcast and then immediately and then cut them out. shove it under a rug because we realize nobody cares. But I, uh, uh, yeah, I was, uh, I, I almost played sports at Ithaca. I big sports fan, big fan of the Ithaca college. Well, I went to, I mean, I mentioned this before I actually went to UConn. And so it's very hard not to different like different sports experience, yes. different yes. experience. Yes. That's, I was, that's called division one where sports matter. <laughs> <laughs> but, but oddly enough, being a theater major, I was like the the minority of people who actually paid attention to all that stuff. So that's what I was. Oh sure, yeah, right. But I I got a few of them to come to the games and realize it's just like cheering Some on fellow huskies. Yeah, right. Cheering on your favorite performers. Just the same thing. Greg, we have a lot of talk things to talk about off mic about musicals and sports. And Let's sports. do it. It's who would have thought? Fun fact. Before we go, uh, I I think I'm still on residence hall probation at. <laughs> What did you do? What did you do? I mean, it was like a combination of things, but I think like the really big one was throwing flaming paper airplanes off of our balcony. Whatever. Oh, in the tower? That's great. No, though. I was actually in the, like, oh, the lower quad. So it was it was like not even <laughs> okay. going that f- that it was just the, the yeah. fact that like was like paper on fire and like a bunch of people cars at home. Were right if there. you don't know where Ithaca is, Ithaca is like the only city in the U.S. that has consistently voted Green Party for the last like thirty years. They are not red. They are not blue. They vote green. green. And if that gives you any sense of why people would care about that. It is more. It is the hippie Sorry. capital of USA. <laughs> That's what made it fun. More than San Francisco. Yeah, it is. Um, I think I'm on probation from the. Place. I actually figured this out. I was on off campus. I think I was shooting bottle rockets off the balcony because uh, it was July, around July. You got similar. Similar. You and I, we would have Fiery been. Things seem, off of balcony. These seem very tame compared to what I was up to <laughs> in college. Well, that's just what I got arrested for or busted. That's for. what you got I actually did for. get like brought. Like I had an open container issue in which I had to actually go to a police station in the back of a police car and everything. Uh-huh. It was the night of the Tonys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So Everything's cool. allowed the night of the Tony. You had to this get dorky most, with it as soon as this like, is the most unfair note to end a podcast on, but I had to disarm and defend myself against a male stalker who attacked me with a sword high on Vicodin. Wow, in Ithaca? In Ithaca College. Wow. Wow. All right, yeah, so we do okay. have a lot of things to talk about. Go bombers. Go bombers. <laughs> Go unibomber. Damn it, why didn't we start with that? I know. Right? Uh, that's a whole other podcast. Okay. You guys are fantastic. I'd love to hear from you again, as well as your cast members, because uh, they all sound like uh, great performers in their own right. So again, invite them on. We would love to. You will you will have a wonderful conversation. Bring yeah, them. They're phenomenal. Right. Excellent. All right. Thank you guys so much. And uh, we I look forward to seeing what, what's coming with season four. Very exciting. Absolutely. What a wonderful duo and podcast 
creators extraordinaire. Uh, I feel like I want to start doing more podcasts with you, just like our uh, Drunky Tissues podcasts. I I think so. I think I think Drunky could hold her own. Yeah, or at yeah. least hold uh, some of the beans in her belly. Perhaps whatever works, man. Whatever She's works. Get to her brother and I admire her her creativity and her initiative. I, as do I. It's it's where dreams come from. And intestinal distress. That's also where that comes from. It's all in the same all in mixture. The same yep. All you you can have extremely highbrow, intelligent, uh, you know, D and D campaigns, uh, and then you can also have uh, you know some potty award winning campaigns. You can have us. That's so. what Dungeons and Dragons is all about. The spectrum. Something is, for everyone. It's true. It's true. So if you're Listening, and you're excited to get more into D&D, you can go to DungeonsAndDragons.com, follow Wizards underscore D&D on Twitter and Instagram, give us a like on the Facebooks, or even download Dragon Plus to your phone and get bi-monthly content beamed directly into your eyeballs through your phone, or you can just look at DragonMag.com, and all that content is right there, including a little... Short story written by yours truly. Yay! Set in Icewind Dale, uh, starring Dharma Fizzbottom, a gnome inquisitive, trying to suss out who is the killer amongst the D&D group. It's It's fun. It's very, very good. Thank you. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. So for that reason alone, go to dragonmag.com and read it, and uh, then I shall have happiness in my soul. You can also read a short story by Adam Lee that stars my cat, Zeldina. Great Zeldini. Oh, pretty kitty. And beautiful artwork by April Prime. I mean, how lucky am I? You are rolling in it. You've got a beautiful cat. Depicted. A beautiful cat illustration. Beautiful cat. a little mangy in real life, but... Yeah. Scrappy. She's also also like 190. (laughs) She's, She's a lich cat. She is. She definitely looks a little bitchy these days. She's constantly digging for her phylactery and burying it deeper and deeper <laughs> into her kitty phylactery, litter. Phylactery. <laughs> phylactery. There was some uh, vocal fry on that phylactery. phylactery. Also, uh, you can follow me for all of these hilarious jokes. I mean, why wouldn't you? Uh, on Twitter at Greg Tito. Uh, there's also a little person named Shelly Moo that you can follow. Mm, yeah, do that. She's very cute. Yeah, she's friends with Greg Tito. She posts a lot of... Yeah, she really don't post a lot of pictures of your cat. No. I mean, I will if people, <laughs> people ask want that. For that. Does anybody want that? I think you should dress her up it's, in uh, cosplay as the great Zeldina uh, and uh, take some pictures. Maybe. It's really hard to get a good picture of her. You can make that your, uh, your holiday card for your family. <laughs> like, very representative. <laughs> exactly. My cat. I love it. Yeah. Uh, and of course, we end this podcast with the ongoing adventures of Drunky Two Shoes. Speaking of cats, I mean, that's actually a really good segue. It's right, right? Uh, she had, <laughs> speaking of uh, bodily functions, uh, she had very recently cast Gust of Wind to empower the sailboat that is in pursuit of the boat she believes carries her brother and litter mate 
Daryl Two Shoes, uh, who's heading to Waterdeep, and uh, a very friendly sailor slash pirate is assisting uh, Drunky right now, and you just cast this gust of wind upon the sails, <laughs> and it is going faster than any boat you have ever seen. Uh, and and uh, the now captain of this boat looks at you and says, Whoa, I didn't think that was possible. Magic. You are a magical uh, tabaxi as well as uh, a extremely fit one. I know a thing or two about a thing or two. You can steer this thing, right? Of, of course, of course. Yeah. He grabs a hold of the uh, the till and uh, makes sure to... Uh, and you said this boat is, is this way? Yes. And, can I see uh, it? Uh, yeah, so it, it, you round around the uh, uh, peninsula uh, and get a view uh, north much farther than you were able to do when you were in the inlet uh, by the village, and you see uh, a boat um, on the horizon, a sail, and you are going faster in a vehicle than you've ever gone. This is going faster than a uh, a horse carriage. It's going faster than anything uh, with the gust of wind being cast on the sail. So what do you do? Uh, I ask this pirate man, this, uh, do, do you know this boat? Are you familiar with them? The other boat that we're chasing? Yeah. Have you seen I it I have before? not seen it before, no, and it's too far away to make out any markings. Uh, okay. Well, I guess we just have to keep keep on keeping on. Keep on keeping on. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Uh, is there anyone else on this boat? Yeah, there's one other just... crew member. He threw off his boss and... Okay. Uh, it is just the two of you, or all well, the three of you, I guess, now in pursuit. And um, after about five minutes, uh, you get into a, uh, you can see, uh, you can actually uh, clearly make out some of the things on the boat that you're pursuing. So make me a perception check. <gasps> I rolled a 19. Ooh. So I'm going to say that that's a pretty good roll. Okay, so yeah, you're you're kind of Ooh, staring up ahead, uh, at the, you know, at the at the front of the boat, kind of leaning off the prow, uh, and you see uh, this boat that you're approaching. It's about 500 feet away now, and on it are uh, several humanoid figures. Um, one of which you can kind of tell has pointy ears, um, and you don't see any uh, anything that looks like the silhouette of your brother or a tabaxi at all on the decks. Uh, okay. But there are five uh, humanoids that you can count uh, that are on this boat and pursuing it. And there is no markings on the boat. Uh, the, the, it looks like they have pulled down any kind of flags that would identify them. So, uh, okay, now the, the guy, the captain, can also see this? Yes. So now, now I ask again, do, do you recognize anyone on this boat? Do you know this boat? Uh, your your eyes are are keen. Let me see. I I I need to get closer. I I actually don't. We don't have like a telescope on this boat or something. A spyglass. Ooh, that's very. No, it's right, very right. expensive. Do you have one of those? No. He looks at you. No. Well, I thought you were, uh, you know, a, a person of means. Well, I mean, I also have great cat eyes. I don't really need one. Mm. Well, we'll be there. We'll we'll catch up with them soon. Can I do like a insight? Check on this guy. Sure. Okay. 18. 18. With my my bonus, yes. You think he's not very smart, uh, but he is uh, exhibiting signs of being kind of taken on a whim to help you. Okay. Uh, 
I can work with him. Yeah, he's, he just doesn't seem very bright. Okay, good. He needs but he's very, very strong. All right. We'll pick it back up there as you get closer to this boat and maybe be able to I find... have butterflies in my stomach. For real. Like, what if, what if we're getting close to Daryl? This has been a very long quest. Yeah.